It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone else like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. What would you do if you had a warning that a disaster was coming? What if you knew, months, even years ahead of time, precisely when the 2020 COVID pandemic would become global? Or you knew when exactly the housing bubble would burst? Well, obviously, if you were a decent person, you would come up with a plan to mitigate all of the worst effects of such a disaster. A plan to take care of every level of society, to make sure that people didn't starve or lose everything. You would make plans to make sure that the crisis didn't spin off into worse and worse effects, like inflation or crashing markets, that would lead to long-term misery for all. And, of course, you would have to put someone in charge of that response to the crisis, which could be a problem. That person would have an enormous amount of power, and surely there would be a danger that they might abuse that power to serve themselves. So you would have to make a point of choosing someone who has demonstrated great integrity, 
who has a demonstrated history of telling the truth and doing the right thing, even when it cost them to do so. Surely, if you had that person, you could be sure that all would go well, and disaster profiteering would not be a problem. All that matters, after all, is that individuals act with righteousness. That is, of course, exactly the scenario that is set up in the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Disaster is coming in the form of a years-long, persistent famine. But the good news is that the Pharaoh has been given ample warning and a plan to mitigate the effects. And when it comes to picking someone to lead the response, the Pharaoh makes the right choice. He chooses Joseph, a man who, through a long history of tragedy, has proven again and again that he will always tell the truth and do the right thing, even at great personal cost. Everything is in place. What could possibly go wrong? Well, this is Retelling the Bible. Episode 8.2 How Joseph Enslaved Egypt As Joseph left the presence of the Pharaoh, the only thing that was on his mind was the enormity of the task before him. The drought and famine might be seven years away, but there was so much that needed to be put into place. There were granaries and storehouses to build, and extensive production and supply processes to design and implement. It would have been overwhelming if he actually had time to stop and think of it all. But, as it was, all he could do was think one or two steps ahead. As he left the palace and came out into the street, he was somewhat amazed to see what was awaiting him. It was a beautiful, ornate chariot drawn by fine horses. What's more, it was surrounded by a crack troop of the king's best fighters. And, as he mounted the chariot, and it began to roll towards the fine new house that Pharaoh had gifted him with, the soldiers went forth into the curious crowds of Egyptians 
brandishing their weapons and crying out, Bend the knee! Bend the knee! And forcing those who did not comply immediately to do so with a few quick, sharp blows. Joseph looked down at himself. He was now clothed in fine linen and wore a golden chain around his neck. He gazed in wonder at his own hand and saw the royal signet ring upon his finger. Everything had changed so quickly that it had been like a dream. Pharaoh had given him these items by his own hand, but Joseph couldn't quite remember that. It had all been a blur. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he realized that he had been given great honor and extraordinary power. He didn't want it, not any of it. But as he stood on the back of the chariot and watched the people scurry out of the way, he couldn't help but recognize that the power, at least, would be useful. He would need to use it to make sure that the Egyptian empire was ready for the disaster that was barreling down on it. The harvests over the following seven years were magnificent. The Nile flooded with regularity and left behind fields bursting with grain. But in many ways, Joseph felt as if all of this abundance only made his job so much harder. He couldn't just let the people enjoy the good times. He sent out his taskmasters to conscript the people into forced labor to build his barns and granaries when they should have been able to rest from their labors. And then, when the harvest time came, he had to send out heavily armored wagons surrounded by whole divisions of troops to confiscate a large portion from each farmer. The people didn't understand. And as much as he tried to explain to them that just because they had all of this grain and other crops right now, that there would come a time in seven years when these things would be scarce, that didn't really bother them. Seven years seemed like a lifetime, and they just wanted to fill their bellies and feed their children now. He begged and pleaded with them to trust him. If they allowed him to do this now, he promised that there would come a time when they would be grateful. He also promised 
that everything he was taking was still theirs, that he would keep it safe for them until it was needed. They would look at him with wary eyes, and then those eyes would shift to the large, well-armed men who stood behind him, and they sullenly nodded their agreement. Joseph told himself that they had chosen to trust him, but he was not sure he believed it. And so it went for seven long years of relentless labor. The routine didn't change much, and if the people got somewhat used to Joseph's demands, they never stopped resenting them. As the years went on, he actually started taking more of the fresh harvest so that he could rotate out some of the allocations from previous years. That seemed even worse to many people. From their point of view, Joseph was simply seizing their fresh new harvest and replacing it with smaller amounts of stale grains and vegetables that had been in storage for a year or two. Joseph continued to promise the people that their suffering would all be worthwhile, that they would thank him in the end. But the end seemed to be so remote that every time he said it, it sounded more hollow, even to his own ears. When the first year of famine came, Joseph greeted it with relief at first. The Nile was supposed to flood at the beginning of the year, but the first month passed and the river just continued to flow sluggishly along. The priests of Happy made their sacrifices and entreated the god but nothing changed. Of course, it was not long before reports started coming in from all over Egypt of failed crops and people suffering. But it wasn't just the Nile Valley that was affected. Egypt had extended its power and influence far and wide into the Arabian Peninsula and Asia as well as far afield in Africa. Word began to trickle in from the furthest frontiers about the failure of the rains and the loss of crops and pasture. The misery was spreading far and wide. This was the moment that Joseph had been waiting for the time when all of his careful preparations and hard work would allow him to stand forth as a savior 
of all Egypt. He would throw open the doors to his granaries and storehouses, and the people would finally see that he had been right all along. And then came the summons from the Pharaoh's household. The great Pharaoh was concerned. He had a large household and many retainers. They were all accustomed to a certain level of luxury. Throughout the seven years of plenty, they had never been called upon to share any of their wealth or savings for the storehouses. They had enjoyed all of the abundance with wild abandon, and they didn't want it to stop. And so, the Pharaoh had called Joseph in front of him to make sure that he and his people would have unfettered access to the fabulous amount of stores that Joseph had put aside. But there was more to it than that. Word had started to spread that there was food in Egypt, and already the wealthy and the elites of the whole world were showing up on Pharaoh's doorstep. They were desperate to make sure that they did not have to adapt their lifestyles in the face of this famine either. And they had gold, lots of it. The Pharaoh, seeing a wonderful opportunity to enhance his treasury, informed Joseph that he must make sure that these people were also sent to the head of the line when the storehouses were opened. Joseph stood silent for some time. He looked down at the signet ring that he still wore on his left hand, the symbol of the extraordinary power he had been given. He had seen, over the past seven years, the unquestioning obedience that this ring gave him among the common folk of Egypt. But somehow, he knew that it would not have the same power over the wealthy. He tried. He gently reminded the Pharaoh where all of the food in the storehouses had come from. He told him of the promises that he had made to the people that they would be able to have their food back when they needed it most. Well, of course they shall have it back, the ruler agreed, and we shall be eternally grateful for all of their contributions in preparations for this disaster. But with so many others coming to us who are willing to pay for their food, we have to take some measures to protect the market economy.
The food that you have stored up is incredibly valuable right now. We can't just give it to the people. They will have to pay too. And so, the people paid. What choice did they have? That year, Joseph collected huge amounts of gold, silver, and precious stones from every area of Egypt. He made sure that they could all eat and be satisfied. But by the time the year had ended, all of their savings were gone. And Joseph knew that the lean times had only just begun. The knowledge of what was yet to come and what it was likely to do to the ordinary people of Egypt filled him with dread. He couldn't sleep. He was losing weight. He had planned so well and wisely for this disaster. But it seemed that even if he managed to save the lives of these people, those lives would never be the same. As Joseph had expected, the flood never came, and the crops failed again the next year. The crisis deepened. And when the common folk came to Joseph this time, they had no gold or silver to offer. When Joseph went to discuss the matter with the Pharaoh and his council, all they could do was talk about how much money they were making selling grain on the international market. The prices that people were willing to pay were even more obscenely high this year. So any suggestions that Joseph could make about giving the people of Egypt, who had contributed so much to the preparation efforts, a break fell on deaf ears. It just wouldn't be fair to let the people have what they needed to survive at no cost, they informed him. Not when so many others were willing to pay so much. So Joseph had no choice. He went back and negotiated with the people to find something that would satisfy the rapacious elites. That year, he took their livestock from them. They became the property of the pharaoh. Even though the poor Egyptians still had to keep and care for them, they would no longer be able to reap the benefits that came from them. In the years that followed, the Egyptians had to give up more and more. First, it was their lands. 
the small farm plots that had been handed down from generation to generation since time immemorial. In the end, all they had left were their own bodies, and so Joseph took those too. They were forced to give their sons and their daughters, their wives and their mothers over into slavery. When they had nothing left, they sold their own bodies as well. When the eighth year began and the Nile Valley swelled once again with the floodwaters, bringing the promise of abundant crops once more, there was little rejoicing throughout the land. Yes, they had survived. Joseph had seen to that. But their survival seemed hollow. No matter how many years of abundant crops were now coming, these people would see no benefit from them for themselves. The Pharaoh and his friends, on the other hand, were ecstatic. In 2007, Canadian writer Naomi Klein published her book, The Shock Doctrine. In it, she exhaustively documents trends that she has noticed in the global capitalist economy. She examines large-scale disasters like the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and Hurricane Katrina that came the next year. She notices that the result of these absolute disasters was that the rich elites ended up much richer and better off, while everyone else fell further down the economic and social scale. What's more, she discovers, this isn't just an accident. She finds lots of evidence that wealthy capitalists have learned to take any sort of disaster and use it as an opportunity to enrich themselves at the expense of others. It is a fascinating book that I would highly recommend, and it certainly anticipates and predicts many things that have happened since its publication, including the 2008 financial crisis and the COVID pandemic, both of which disasters only led to the rich getting very much richer. And this is despite the 2008 crisis largely being caused by the wealthy investment sector. Klein calls this disaster capitalism and makes it clear that it is a major factor in shaping our world today. She does not deal with the Egyptian famine described in the book of Genesis, but she absolutely could have. What is described in the pages of the Bible could make a perfect training manual for disaster capitalism.
But what really struck me about this story was who made sure that that particular disaster benefited the wealthy. It is Joseph, a man who has been demonstrated again and again in this book to be a good man, an honorable man, and a man of integrity. And yet, he is the one who systematically robs the common folk of Egypt of everything that they own. I think we often assume that the big problems in the world are just caused by the evil folk, the greedy and corrupt politicians, the self-serving authorities. If only good and righteous people were put in charge of things, problems like poverty and the wealth gap would just go away. But this story in Genesis suggests something different. The problem is maybe not with the ethics of individuals so much as it is with the immorality of the system. What if even the most upright people can't fix the world and the only real change can come from demolishing and replacing entire corrupt and evil systems. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. And the mood music for this episode was Morgana Rides. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. Go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible to support this podcast. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>